Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So this Christmas, we have been looking at Isaiah's prophecy um, concerning the coming of the Messiah, uh, specifically Isaiah chapter 9, um, where uh, Isaiah actually gives four specific names um, to describe this coming Messiah, this coming king. And every one of those names is packed with meaning. They have all kinds of implications for us, even today, some 2,000 years later. And so we have been looking through uh, Isaiah 9 and, um, and looking at each of these names. And we're going to be looking tonight at the second one, uh, the mighty God. Now, beginning of the year, we started the series called the, the, the Story. And we went all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we spent a good deal of the year in the Old Testament. And as we went through the Old Testament, we found there were a number of times where God briefly made an encounter with an individual. And when he did, he usually appeared in some form that was, was quite terrifying or, or, or imposing. Um, he meets with, with Abraham, and he's, he's a consuming fire that meets right in the middle of the sacrifice that, that Abraham has offered. Um, he appears to Moses in a burning bush um, on the Mount Sinai. When he is giving the law, it says that the, the whole mountain trembled and a a great cloud descended on it and there was lightning and thunder and all of these things when when Moses spoke with and asked God show me your glory God says you can't handle my glory (laughs) in essence and and he puts him in a little cave a little crevice in a rock and he says you stay here you face the rock and I'll pass around behind you and you'll just see the glory of what's left behind after I've passed by and that'll be too much for you and he goes down from the mountain and his face is glowing because of that brief encounter that he has with God. He appears in a whirlwind, a tornado, just all of these terrifying and imposing um, appearances of God. And then, and then you get to the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah talks about a baby. <laughs> and it's something very, very different than we would expect from this appearance of God. If you want to turn there, it's Isaiah chapter 9. And Isaiah wrote these words, beginning in verse 6. He says, For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah prophesies prophesies that like never before, God is going to make himself known. But he's going to do it in such a way that he is approachable and accessible. A child. A baby. But in the same time, Isaiah also says, make no mistake. Don't be fooled by this little baby. Because this is no ordinary child. This is, among other things, the mighty God. So tonight, I want to kind of unpack that name and what that means for us, um, because I think there's a lot of implications to that. And it really comes down to, if God has now made himself accessible to us, made himself approachable to us in this baby, this child, and yet at the same time retains this mighty God stature, how does that work in our lives? When does it come down to our lives? How do we experience the power of this mighty God in our day-to-day living? And I think it starts with this. The first thing is you got to let go of your illusion of control. 
And I use that word very specifically. Control is an illusion. We live with this illusion that I am in control of my life. As Luke tells the story of Jesus' birth, he he writes this. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. Now, Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man on earth. He was emperor over the entire Roman Empire. His empire stretched as far west as Portugal and as far east as India. As far north as England and all the way down to the southern border of Egypt. Covered roughly 3 million square miles. In fact, at that time, the Mediterranean Sea, they didn't even call it the Mediterranean Sea. They called it our sea. (laughs) Because they ruled all around it. Some 70 million people were under this man's rule. He was a powerful man. He had a standing army of over half a million soldiers. The most powerful man on earth. He defeated Mark Antony and because of that ended a hundred year civil war that the Roman Empire had experienced. And he ushered in what was called the Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome. And he was lauded as the prince of peace. He was the king over all kings. There's an inscription in, in a town found in the town of Pergamum that said to Emperor Caesar, the son of God, the divine Augustus. And the record of his achievements were proclaimed throughout the empire as the good news, the euangelion, the gospel. The most powerful man on all the earth. If there is ever anyone who is in control, not only of his own life, but of everybody's life, it was Caesar Augustus. And one day he decides to send out a decree. And he makes his decree known throughout the whole Roman empire And some 1,500 miles away in a little backwater town of Nazareth, an impoverished young married couple began to make a journey back to the husband's hometown. And his wife is in the third trimester. Not the time that you want to be moving. But Caesar Augustus made a decree. And so Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Caesar Augustus is in control. Or maybe not. Because centuries before that, the prophet Micah wrote these words, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Centuries before, Caesar Augustus sends out a decree that moves this young family from the town of Nazareth, which is where they were living, to Bethlehem, which is where God said the Messiah was going to come from. God already had that plan in mind. Caesar thinks he's in control. He is the most powerful man on earth. He's living with this illusion of control. But behind the scenes, there's someone else who's in control. And, you know, Caesar is not that much different than you and I. Well, we don't have half a million soldiers at our command. We don't own land that covers three million square miles. But every one of us are kingdom builders of our own. 
We all have this kingdom problem. We are all building our own little kingdoms. And that's kingdom with a little K. You're building yours. I'm building mine. See, in the kingdom of Ken, see, in the kingdom of Ken, my agenda takes precedence. My opinions are the most important ones. My rights are the priority. My schedule, my schedule is the one that matters the most. And everything needs to run according to me. The problem is, nobody else cares about the kingdom of Ken. Even my wife does not care about the kingdom of Ken. Well, I take that back. Actually, she does. We are in an alliance, okay? So, but she's, she's got her own little kingdom too. We're all building our own little kingdom. And we live with this illusion that we are in control of our lives. But all it takes is a doctor's diagnosis or an economic downturn or some other tragedy that we have no control over. And all of a sudden we realize my little kingdom ain't much. And as much as I thought, I'm really not in control of my life. When I am pursuing my little kingdom, one of the things that it does is it puts me at odds with everybody else. Because everybody else is building their kingdom too. And our kingdoms come into conflict. And often the result of that conflict is frustration or annoyance or even anger. Let me give you one example of that. Uh, this summer, I got a new car. One of the features of this car is it's a very, very cool thing. It has an onboard computer that is constantly calculating how many miles per gallon I'm getting on fuel. It's a wonderful little thing. And I have this little OCD thing part of my kingdom. So I am constantly, it doesn't just tell me how much has happened over the trip. It gives me instant reading on how many miles per gallon I am getting. When I am traveling down the freeway and there is no traffic and I'm able to cruise with the cruise control on and I've got it in savings mode, you know, I am, I am right up there in that 40 to 50 miles per gallon range and I'm loving life. And then traffic sets in and I get into stop and go traffic and somebody cuts in front of me and it goes from the 40 to 50 down to the 20 to 30. I get a little ticked off. And then I get off the freeway, and somebody has put a stoplight there, and there's nobody coming from any other direction, but that light says red. So I have to stop. And you know what happens to that little mile per gallon gauge? It goes all the way down to zero. My kingdom is being threatened. <laughs> we all have our little kingdoms that we are building. And when things don't go according to our plans or our agendas or our priorities or our rights, we get angry, we get upset, we get frustrated, we get annoyed. In fact, one of the best ways to know if you're having a problem with your kingdom is how often do you get upset at other people? How often do you get annoyed at those annoyances of life? Because really they're just impinging on your little kingdom. Control is really an illusion. And even, even Caesar Augustus, with all of his armies and all of his vast wealth and all of the laud that he received, is not really in control. He wasn't in control, never really was, and neither are you. And the first thing to experience God's power at work in your life is 
you got to let go of that illusion that you have that you are in control of your life. Now, the good news is, though you are not in control, there is somebody who is. And that's the second part of it. Acknowledge his authority. Acknowledge God's authority. You may not be in control, but someone is. This is not a random chaos thing that's going on in this universe. There is a God who created it, and he is in control. And the sooner I recognize his authority, the better off I'm going to be. You see, the truth of the matter is you and I, we were not intended to carry the burden of this life on our own. We were meant and created to live in a relationship with God. Isaiah writes it, puts it this way. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now that word government, the Hebrew word is misra. It really means authority or rule or dominion. It's not just about a government structure. It's about the weight of the world. And it's on his shoulders. In fact, he goes on and he says, Of his greatness, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. What he's saying is, there is a God, and it is not you. (laughs) And we need to be reminded of that from time to time. In fact, Turn to the person next to you and just tell them, there is a God and it is not you. All right? Just let that person know that they are not the one who's in control. (laughs) See, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether I acknowledge it or not, there is a God. And he is in control and I am not. And his kingdom is advancing and his eternal purposes are being worked out in this world. And what Isaiah says is now because of this child, this mighty God who is born, now because of Jesus, you and I get in on this kingdom. We have the chance now to be a part of what the God who is in control is doing in this world. And he is at work in your life and my life in every situation. In every situation, God is at work. Even when it seems like your life is spinning out of control. Even if it's spinning out of control and you are the cause of that. God is still at work. One of the things that we saw as we've gone through the story this past year is how God is always working redemptively in ways that nobody else sees it. We've seen it throughout the story. God's unfolding plan of redemption. A man young man named Joseph, who has older brothers who are jealous of him, sell him off into slavery. And yet God works redemptively in that. And in that slavery in Egypt, he rises to be the chief and the head of the whole household and put in charge of everything, that whole household, second only to Potiphar himself. And then he is accused, unjustly accused of attempted rape and is thrown into prison. And he is in prison. And God works redemptively in that jail. And he rises to the top. And he is the second to the, to the jailer. And is in charge of all the other prisoners. And one day, two other new prisoners come in. The baker and the, and the cupbearer. And, and they have these dreams. And Joseph interprets them to them. And, and one of them is going to get put to death. The other one is going to restore to his position. He says, now when you get back to your position, don't forget me. Remember me. You know, let, the, let the Pharaoh know that I'm put here unjustly. And the guy says, sure, I'll do that for you. And Seven years later, he's totally forgotten. But then Pharaoh has a dream. And he remembers, oh, yeah, there was this guy who used to be able to interpret dreams. He's in jail. They bring him before Pharaoh. He interprets the dream 
about seven lean, seven bountiful years, and then seven lean years. And, and, and then Pharaoh says, well, we ought to do something about that. But he can't find anybody. So he puts Joseph in charge of this whole saving program. So over those seven years of abundance, they save up. So when the lean years come and the famine comes, there's plenty of food, not only for all of Egypt, but for those from the surrounding countries. And here comes someday, these 12 brothers of his show up at the door for grain. God works redemptively in this man's life that seemed like everything goes against him. And it comes to the end of the story and they find out that this is the brother that they sold into slavery and they're scared to death because he's going to kill him. And he says, no, 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 you got to understand. You intended evil, but God used it for good. See, you see that throughout the story. That's what God does. God works redemptively. And you might be facing a situation when your life is spinning out of control. You might be facing a situation that's just totally overwhelming to me and you, to you. And you think, I, I have no idea what's going on here. How can God possibly at work, be at work in this? But he is. Because that's what he does. He is in control even when you are not. And you go through the story. And you come to Jesus who comes and preaches about the coming kingdom of God. He grows up, and for three years he, he preaches, and he heals, and he, and he does all of these miracles, and then he is arrested and falsely accused, and he's put to death on the cross, and you think, man, if there's any time where God ought to sh- should have stepped in and done something about it, you would have thought this would be the time. And he's put to death on a cross, and what you discover is that God is working redemptively and through that you and i find this kingdom that god intended us to uh, to live in we find the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness because he bore that cross on the cross that price for you and me see god is always working redemptively and when when i think it all rests on me then i am filled with anxiety and uncertainty and doubt And I carry all that burden myself. When I realize that God is in control and he is the one in authority, then there is hope and there's promise. There's redemption. Isaiah wrote, the authority of his rule will continue to grow. The peace that he brings will never end. The Lord's great love will make sure that it happens. So, I recognize this illusion of control that I'm living under. And I give that up. And I recognize that there is a God and it is not me. And he is in control. And then I make a decision about that. I surrender to God's direction for my life. See, that's how you experience God's power. It's this thing called surrender. Now, surrender is not a very popular term. It's not a very popular concept with us. It it just smacks of weakness and defeat. But really, really, it is the greatest source of strength. People in recovery have discovered this. The first three steps of a 12-step movement is, I recognize that my life is out of control. And I am powerless to change it. I came to realize that there is a power greater than me. And then I choose to turn my life over to him. 
Now, Jesus came to let us know that this higher power is not some abstract force. It is something quite personal. It is a God that he came to make known. See, Jesus came to let us know that the higher power is a person. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The child that Isaiah wrote about is the Jesus who came to make his power available to you and to me. And those who experience God's power are the ones who choose to submit and surrender to his authority. John Ortberg writes, There is no way for a human being to come to God that does not involve surrender. Jesus does not come to rearrange the outside of our life the way we want. He comes to rearrange the inside of our lives the way God wants. It's all about surrender. Now, surrender, i got to talk about it a little bit. Because surrender is not just a passive acceptance, not a fatalistic kind of just going with the flow kind of a thing. It's not a kind of a que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. It is actually a choice. And, and that's what it comes down to. It, it always starts with a choice. In, in Luke's account of Christ's birth, an angel appears to Mary and says, you've been chosen and, and the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. And, and you will be with child and you will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Now, the angel made that declaration, but it really at that point came down to Mary. And Mary said these words, I am the Lord's servant and I am willing to accept whatever he wants. May everything you have said come true. See, surrender is a willingness to embrace God's plan and direction for your life. It is a willful obedience and, and a willingness to use your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your time, your resources for his kingdom's sake. See, that's what surrender is all about. To be able to say like Mary, if that is what God wants from me, then may it be exactly as you said. I'm your servant, Lord. And then, and then, after the decision to act in obedience. Matthew tells it from Joseph's side. Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. And they're engaged, but they're not fully married yet. And there's a courtship period involved in that. Although they're considered really pretty much married, it hasn't, they haven't really come together yet. And it really hasn't been formalized yet. And so he finds out that she's pregnant and he's, he's, he's a nice guy, and he doesn't want to put her to public disgrace. So he's going to just kind of quietly divorce her and push her off to the side so nobody gets embarrassed and nobody has to deal with this. But he can't handle this. And an angel appears to him in a dream and says to him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what's conceived in her is of God. And Joseph's react, because Joseph has a choice in this too. When Joseph woke up, it said he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him even though it was uncomfortable for him even though it was going to change his whole future and all of his plans and what he thought his family was going to look like and what his future was going to look like everything was going to change but he did as the lord commanded him even though it was uncomfortable even though it was a tough decision 
he obeyed. See, that's what surrender is. Surrender is a willing acknowledgement that God is in control and his ways are better than my ways. And his commands are right and just. And obedience is really the best possible life that I could have. It really comes down to an act of trust. And it's something that you do every single day of your life. Every day, you get the chance to choose. Every morning when you wake up and it starts all over again, you have the choice on whose kingdom you're going to be a part of, whose kingdom you're going to build. And you make that choice and then you act in obedience and you do it on a daily basis. Paul wrote to the Roman church, and this is from the message paraphrase because I just love it. just makes it really simple. Take your everyday ordinary life You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Would you bow your heads? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 